Hello, everybody, and welcome to Cana Rinse Sound of Play 35. Sound of Play, every other Wednesday, we bring you some of our and your favourite pieces from the many video game soundtracks we've enjoyed over the decades. And joining me, Leon Cox, in Sound of Play 35 is returning guest and regular contributor to the main Cane and Rinse podcast, Glenn Watts. Hi there. Welcome back, Glenn. It's good to be back. We've had, uh, we've asked most of our, uh, the guests we've already had on to come back and those who we haven't, we still will. Plus we'll have some new guests, but um, this is partly because we changed the format uh, slightly to allow for more picks for our guests who found it very difficult to narrow their choices down to three. So we've increased that to five. So in fact, you'll have had eight by this, uh, by the end of this. So uh, hopefully that goes some way to um, expressing your love for a, a larger spread of your gaming music. And I know you, you are, you know, you do have uh, extensive uh, musical gaming musical knowledge because you regularly pop up on our on our forum with uh, requests and posts about other gaming soundtracks. So it's clearly been, although you're an AI coder by trade, yeah. um, the music side of the, of the games industry is obviously something that you're passionate about as well. It's been something I've been a huge fan of right back since I had a Commodore sixty four. To be honest, it's been 
the music of games is something I've been always interested in. Right down, I, I sometimes record things with a tape recorder next to the TV so I can yeah. listen to things without loading the games in again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've still got a couple of cassettes I made. I think I may have mentioned this before on a podcast from uh, where I plugged some phono cables from my um, Mega Drive and an Amiga into a into a cassette recorder and recorded all those soundtracks. And speaking of Mega Drives, uh, the opening track we heard there was from the Mega Drive version of a game uh, that I am much more familiar with the Amiga version of. Um, it was a Bitmap Brothers game, but it was converted for the consoles or at least... I don't think there was there a Super Nintendo version. I'm not sure that there I was. I think there was, but it was later was. than the Mega Drive one. Okay, um, so converted uh, by the Wizards at Graph Gold, uh, the famous eight and sixteen bit coding team, uh, Braybrook and Turner and others who converted things like Rainbow Islands as well as coming up with their own stuff like uh, Iridium. Um, so that was the Mega Drive version of Gods. Um, a Bitmap Brothers um, sort of action platformer from the early 90s. And that particular piece um, is from the high score table. Now, as I recall, I don't even remember the Amiga version having a high score no, table. No, I don't think it did. This is something, this is why Console, this is specifically yeah. a Mega Drive track because I don't remember the Amiga version having this piece at all so exactly which makes me think because the, the the music on the original gods was credited famously to nation 12 which was a uh, uh, mainly john fox uh, one of the founders of british new wave band ultravox but also collaborated with tim simonon of bomb the bass and others but i think my my suspicion is that the guy who did the audio for the mega drive version jason page probably would have composed that particular piece but there's there's no way to know for sure people are even arguing on the youtube um, <laughs> yeah, the the YouTube pay, uh, page for that tune. Um, De- nobody debating seems to who it really was that composed it. Yeah, yeah. It, it does. It does have a bit of Jason Page's feel to it. So I, I'd lean that one myself, but. I do. John Fox's stuff tends to be a little bit more because um, you know he came out of the early synth scene in the late seventies. Um, I mean, Ultravox even started before synths were even a thing. I think, but. Um, Jason Page's stuff uh, slightly tends to the stuff from the era has has that slightly more early nineties feel, and there's definitely some sort of dance, almost rave elements to the to the yeah, high it, score tune there with the sort of pianos. Yeah, it's got that nineties that, that piano in there. Yeah, definitely. Uh, but yeah, good stuff. Why did you particularly choose that? Is that a, an old favourite of yours? Uh, yeah, I, I uh, picked up that game quite recently again. I've been collect, collecting old Mega Drive games again to sort of play them through, and I'd, forgo- nice. I'd forgotten that it had this slightly ridiculously bass-heavy, quite chunky piece of music in it, which is quite different to the rest of the music in the game. The Mega Drive version of Mega Blast, Xenon 2, uh, has a has a quite a different-sounding main theme or version of uh, Mega, ba- Mega Blast by uh, uh, Bomb the Bass. Um, does the Mega Drive version of Gods have a version of Into the Wonderful, the famous theme tune? Uh, not quite. It has no. no. I don't think it has that track, but it has versions of pretty much all the other tracks. All the level music sounds very similar, right. and the title okay. screen is very similar, but it doesn't have that intro tune. Okay, yeah, we must uh, include that on a sound of play in the future. Into the wonderful, it's uh, it's a, it's a real belter. Um, takes me back. That game um, was uh, sometimes disparagingly known in the pages of Amiga Power certainly as plods because it was uh, it was it was quite a slow paced game i i really liked it um and it had uh, as with a few other games of the era uh 
such as uh, Swiv, it had a sort of on-the-fly adaptive difficulty setting. So the better you did, uh, the harder things got, the more enemies there were, the more hits things took. I don't know if all that made it over to the Mega Drive. Yeah, as far uh, as I can tell it's still there. It does the the opposite as well. So if you're playing particularly poorly, they'll they'll drop extra lives and things in there. Absolutely, yeah. Um, But I don't think I ever finished it. It was only four big levels, as I recall, but I I seem to remember it got pretty tough. Yeah, I, I, I... I had this originally when I had my Mega Drive back when I was a kid, and I mm. remember getting a lot further than I can get on it now. <laughs> Playing it now, yeah. I'm struggling. It's, yeah. it's much it... harder than, I'm, than I remember it being. Yeah, so it's true for so many games of the era. Um, and are you finding it is, it, is it quite pedestrian? Is that a fair criticism, or does it does it suit it well, Com- would you Compared say? to modern puzzle platformers, yeah, absolutely. It's very deliberate. It's got that thing where you've got to wait for frames of animation to finish before you can do the next action. Of course. Yeah. And there's a very long turn animation when you want to turn around. Oh, right. And it all yeah. feels quite, oh, quite, well, like I say, quite plodding. I don't know whether it would have felt like that at the time to me, no. but obviously there's been... 20 odd years of game development since then and so things that i would expect this kind of game to have it doesn't so that's why it feels a bit weird yeah i remember it had a you know it had a strong atmosphere of its own and it had that typical bitmap brothers um art style albeit they turned it here to uh you know, sort of ancient greek style setting i mean it didn't look like uh, god of war for instance um it had it had a sort of their twist on it. it had some particularly peculiar looking monsters and things like that. Um, yeah, I, I like a lot it. of hidden secrets and switch puzzles and things like that. That you know, very typical of Bitmap Brothers games. They had lots of things you could discover. You know, run around this room in the particular direction and something oh, spawns. Right. And they yeah, they they did a lot of them. Not quite as much as they did in Chaos Engine, but there's quite a lot here. Yeah, yeah, and sadly, um, as uh, we've had uh, decent ports of uh, the Chaos Engine and uh, Speedball 2 on, on Steam. Um, but uh, Gods hasn't made it. I'm not sure why. Oh, well. Anyway, uh, next up, we have a community request from Gaio Pinto, who uh, has requested something from a Kenerman's favourite, and that is Persona 4. He says, I think the ending theme from Persona 4, Nevermore, is really great. I was reluctant to try Persona 4 Golden on the Vita because I had heard about the hour count required to beat it. I gave it a shot and 87 hours later, I wished there was a way for it to keep going forever. By the end of the game, I felt closer to the investigation team than to most of my real friends. And Nevermore really captures the bitter sweetness of finishing a long game, both the triumph and the sadness that it's now over. The part when the music cuts out at about the 4 minutes and 30 second mark still gives me chills.
So that's Shoji Meguro uh, with a vocal by Hirata Shihoko. Uh, Nevermore from Persona 4 or Shin Megami Tensei Persona 4, uh, as it was originally when it first came out in 2008. And uh, that almost seven minute long track is the final theme. Uh, and we covered uh, Persona 4 on uh, Kane and Rince podcast, issue 80. Uh, of course, hosted by our own Josh, who's a massive fan. And he will be taking on Persona 3 in a future Kane and Rince podcast in the not too distant future. And now back to our guest, Glenn Watts, formerly of Lionhead uh, Studios. And uh, mind you, I, I was thinking about this earlier, Glenn. Um, and uh, as as with last time, I don't know what you may or may not want to say about all this, um, <laughs> but but I think uh, currently um, you're probably uh, fairly happy to be saying uh, that you're not a member of Twenty Two Cans, given the trouble they've had in recent times. Um, you didn't take that particular um, avenue, but then I suppose. Um, do you overall have sort of? I assume you overall have fond memories of working on Fable, uh, the Fable series, and things yeah, like general, that. yeah, generally, yeah, generally, like like working anywhere there are ups and downs, but yeah, generally speaking, working on the Fable games was good times. Yeah, and uh, remind us what are some of the other sort of game, the you know, the known stuff that we'll know that you had a hand in the AI thereof. Uh, Fable two, probably about half of the creatures were were my work in terms of AI. Fable three, it was almost all of them. Yeah, so there was there was um. There were less engineers needed for Fable 3 because there was more code reuse in that game. Okay. And uh, and I know that you are quite fond of what was, I assume, your last project there, which was uh, The Journey, is that Fable right? The Journey, yeah, the the, yeah. Uh, the Connect title. And you feel it got, because it was Connect and uh, and uh, and probably, I suppose, also because it was towards the end of the 360s lifespan, it perhaps didn't get the attention it deserved? I thought it was fairly maligned in the reviews, but I think possibly unfairly so. Okay. 
Yeah, um, I, I really can't comment because I didn't have a Kinect for 360. So um, that was so I its major problem, I think. So. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> yes, um, and yeah. I mean, it must. Be, yeah, it's an interesting situation now um, with Kinect. Um, I was, you know, I was never enthused about the technology. Um, I was always, I was kind of assuming that one day there would be like a killer app that made it essential to have a Kinect. Um, like there would be one developer, whether it was I don't, someone like Kojima or or somebody who did something amazing with it that made it, you know, like, oh, I've got to have this for this particular game. But uh, as with many console add-ons, it, it seemed to be used for s- sort of such minor um, sort of trifling purposes. Um, I'd, have like, I'd have liked to have seen Kojima take it on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and obviously games that did, uh, you know, require it, such as uh, Fable Journey. Um, yeah, that, it was weird though, wasn't it? Because actually in terms of units sold, Connect, I, I believe, did well for Microsoft. But I think it had a, held a record for a while for the most successful consumer technology device. Yeah. But yet, um, as with sort of other similar things before it, um, I guess the fact that it everyone doesn't, have it is is always going to be a problem so they decided to address this by packing it in with every xbox one but that caused the problem of people actually i mean there were other issues with the way they marketed the xbox one at first but um it added to the price of buying an xbox one for instance so they decided to take it out it also reduced processor time for other uh you know other considerations of, of games development so it seems to have actually benefited the xbox one at least somewhat to to remove it so i i do have a connect 2 because i bought an xbox one at launch but it actually seems to have died recently but i literally never used it so i use the speech things there's a few games that use the speech system in it quite well yeah i found um the only one i i tried it on really uh no i did try it on a few things but i had it on uh, activated on on fifa FIFA um, is the one that probably uses it the best. But the problem is, uh, when I play FIFA, I often listen to radio at the same time, football <laughs> matches. Yeah. So it would start to... I'd be Say if I was listening to Brighton Ove Albion, I was playing as Brighton Ove Albion, if the commentator said substitute such and such, so it would start... The game would start, start substituting to, players, yeah. Start substituting players. So there's... Yeah, I started turning that off and then... Yeah, and then one day I noticed a few weeks back that the light... The lights, the light was no longer on my Connect, so I assume it's just died from, from lack of use. <laughs> Maybe uh, it's come unplugged. Yeah, um, yeah. No, I've I've shelved it now anyway, but we'll see. Um, but yeah, I think that's probably the it for that technology. I think um, be interesting to see if Microsoft uh, go down the virtual reality headset route next. Maybe they seem to be the only one that aren't at the moment. Well, exactly. Although they have that, that tie in with Oculus, kind of. Right. Yeah. It makes you. It makes you think they must. They must be looking at it. Um, well, Hollow Hollow Lens is their thing, isn't it? So that's right. But yeah, maybe they'll. Um, yeah, it's. Uh, I suppose. I don't know. Maybe they'll be slightly more cautious this time if they feel they've been stung in the past. But uh, this is not an industry speculation podcast. This is a music podcast. I'm forgetting my remit. Uh, so next up, we have a track uh, from uh, Remember Me from when Don't Nod. Well, before before they got kind of a bit famous, really, this year, this last year with uh, Life is Strange. But um, you, you're a fan of Remember Me overall? Yeah. Or is it just this music? Yeah, I'm, I really, really like Remember Me. It has a lot of very nice design aspects in it. The com- has a combat system where you design your own combo orders. Um, it has very good visual style that starts off very intricate and detailed in the future Paris. 
It actually looks like a future Paris would look. It's not just a lots of futuristic buildings everywhere. It's got the whole technology built on top of what was already there. So you've got the old mm. crumbling buildings with fancy technology doors and things on them. And, and then as the game progresses, the visual style becomes more and more abstract, but it's very subtle over the course of the level, so you don't really notice it. By, by the end, there's only like three or four colours involved in the levels. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I didn't really love Remember Me. I... I didn't. I certainly didn't hate it, um, but it felt rather. It it for me. It sort of lacked overall personality, <clears throat> particularly in terms of the sort of the the gameplay, which felt like a sort of um, a slight amalgam of of bits from other games, like the platforming from Uncharted and the combat from Batman, but not quite as exciting as either. Um, but I could see what they were they were getting at, and I and I did really appreciate the. Um, the sort of between level bits where you're you're delving into people's and trying to alter people's memories and things like that. I thought that was a that was a cool uh, idea that perhaps they could have gone even further with. I think it's, um, it's the strong, certainly the strongest part of the game is is those memory editing sections, and it's pretty clear that that was the early inspiration for where they went then with Life is Strange. Yeah, certainly. So this track, uh, the title of this track actually relates to this. Uh, it's called uh, Nilin. Is it? I think, Nilin, I, think I, it, I think it's Nilin. Neilan, the memory hunter. Um, so, what, what is it you like about this one from uh, Olivier de Riviere? A lot of the music in the game is very orchestral in, at times, but it's also electronic layered on top of it. And in this particular track, there's a lot of um, glitching and looping mm. to sort of go along with the main theme of the game, which is that people's memories are not necessarily reliable. So the the music being slightly glitchy, slightly electronic at mm. times, and jumping around is to make keeps you on edge. In sections of the game where it's being fully orchestral, it's where things are more trustworthy. It's it's quite a, it uses it as a subtle effect in the game. So the certain scenes in the game are much more electronic and much more glitchy, and they tend to be the scenes where other things are perhaps going on in the story. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I was listening to this earlier in preparation, and uh, yeah, it was uh, it's it's uh, it's a cool thing. And yeah, it's one of those where you li- if you're listening to it on headphones, you you start to get that slight. Is this is that meant to sound like that, or are my headphones playing up? Which I which I actually quite like. Um, so yeah, this is from Re- Remember Me from 2013.
uh, Neelin, The Memory Hunter by Olivier de Rivière. I believe that's uh, my French isn't the best, but uh, that seems like a, a close uh, assimilation. Um, and Remember Me is a game that's been, um, I think it's been on sort of various PC uh, bundles and deals and things like that. And it was also given away as a PlayStation Plus game a couple of years ago, maybe not even a couple of years ago. So a lot of people will probably have that in their download lists if you fancy giving it uh, giving it a go. I'd definitely say it's worth trying. It's one we've had requested for the podcast um, and it's certainly on the list, but uh, we haven't got there yet. Maybe someday. Now back in time to the 16-bit era and back again to the early 90s, in fact. And this is requested by Mikhail Kay, uh, who says, Composed by Masano Akahori, the stage one theme of Assault Suit Vulcan, a.k.a. Cybernator, has wicked, funky, sampled bass guitar twangs in it, an industrial undertone and an exuberant recurring synth melody. It's classic video game music in my book, pumping you up for rocket-propelled dashing and firefights between towering mecha. Although Assault Suits Vulcan was released in 1992 in Japan, this tune will have you believe that the 1980s were still in full effect as it has an 80s action film OST quality to it. This is We've Gotta Do It.
lots of memories for me of Cybernator, um, as it was over here, released by Palcom, which was one of the labels that Konami used to get around the rules of that Nintendo had of not allowing publishers to release more than a certain number of games per year, which was kind of seemed like a weird thing. Um, I think they also they they used a few other uh, brands. Was LJN one of theirs? Certainly Palcom, and and a few others. Um, and the only thing about Cybernator is, and it's a game you can now get on uh, the Wii U Virtual Console. Uh, I have a copy, and uh, it's very cool, and it sounds like that, like you just heard, which is a lot of fun. Um, it's by NCS Corp rather than an uh, in-house Konami. Um, but I learned after playing Cybernator that. The original Japanese version, Assault Suits Vulcan, had a lot more um, exposition in it, a lot more dialogue uh, and, you know, generally deeper story, stronger character development and all that sort of thing. But um, for whatever reason, they elected to chop most of that out, probably reasons of translation um, and things like that. So it became more of a kind of straight, uh, you know, space, 16-bit space mech shooter thing. But it was still fun, but I, I was always intrigued. I'm sure there are fan translations. You can play it on emulation and so on. Did you ever play Cybernator? I, I'm, I'm aware of it, but I don't remember ever playing it. I, I didn't play a lot of Super Nintendo games because I was, I was a Mega Drive owner at the time. So I've only oh. really caught up on the Super Nintendo in recent years. So yeah. it's not one I've played. Fair enough. Well, uh, yeah, I recommend people check it out on Wii U Virtual Console. Now... Uh, again, the actually late 80s, very early 90s, this, I think the original release of this game was eight, 89 in Japan, but um, this was uh, around to tie in with the uh, huge then before superhero movies happened every week and... You know, it's still a it's still a big deal, but uh, this was this was a massive thing when when Tim Burton's Batman the movie came out in 1989, and there were uh, various games. Um, there was an Amiga one that uh, and eight bits as well, but the Amiga version was uh, quite fondly regarded and well received by Ocean. Uh, but on the Game Boy, uh, Sunsoft did the work, and uh, this is, yeah, a rare track um, that we, yeah, we don't often play stuff from the Game Boy. Um, we featured the famous Robocop uh, uh, piece, um, but this is uh, from Batman, yes, Gotham Cathedral. Uh, so was this a game that you had in, on your big fat original Game Boy? Yep, it was one of the first Game Boy games I got. I think it's a US import, my copy, so I have no idea how I got nice. it so early, but it's certainly was one of the earliest Game Boys I played. It's a uh, Fun little platform shooting game. It has visually, it looks quite a lot like Super Mario Land. It's got that very same small blocks feel going on with it. Yeah, yeah. But it's a little strange in that Batman runs through the entire game shooting people with a gun. Which, oh. which of course he famously doesn't do. No, that'd be like <laughs> Doctor Who in a in a in a shoot 'em up. Um, yeah, I'm surprised they didn't make it a you know a batarang, have him knocking things out of uh, people's hands. But then it's easy to forget kind of just how rudimentary the Game Boy technology was. This was a very small 8-bit processor, Z80 processor, wasn't it? And, um, you know, a very low-res black and white or yellow and grey screen. <laughs> um, I think it had four shades it could do. Four shades, yeah. yeah. And it had that contrast button where you could make it completely invisible in either direction, yep. <laughs> either completely dark or completely light. Never understood the pu purpose of that. 
Um, but it was an amazing, you know, we're, we're about to cover uh, The Legend of Zelda uh, Link's Awakening on uh, on the Kane and Rince podcast. And I'm playing the DX version, which was uh, five years later, but it's still sort of mind boggling what certain developers, um, Sunsoft actually did quite a lot of stuff, didn't they, for the Game Boy? And I think they got a lot out of it. Um, yeah, they did quite a lot on the NES as well. They, 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 yeah. is it, uh, is Master Blaster one of theirs, I think? Yeah, I think that's right, yeah. Yeah, famous game. Um, yeah, so did was this um, typical of Game Boy game that it was very short and easy to finish, or did this have you sweating over it for months? Do you remember? I don't think I finished it at the time. I finished it recently. It's, I think I've gotten quite a bit better at games now, but I think I got quite <laughs> far. There's a, there's a towards the end. There's a horizontal scrolling shoot 'em up level, so it, it really is borrowing from Super Mario Land. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, I yeah. don't think I could get past that as a kid because it's very very difficult, but. Ah, I've, normally those are the easier levels. Yeah, I've, I've, I've beaten it since though. So, nice job. <laughs> Closure. Uh, yeah. So uh, you've picked Gotham Cathedral. Is this uh, is this an, uh, from early in the game? Or? This is uh, towards the end. It's the final level before. Okay. You know, oh, you, right. you, you, if you remember the Tim Burton movie, he climbs the cathedral, cathedral. climbs the cathedral, and fights the Joker at the end. So it's that level. Excellent. All right. Let's enjoy it. Gotham Cathedral by Nobuyuki Hara and Naoki Kodaka. sounds there from the Game Boy from 26, 27 years ago. Goodness me. It's a long time. Yeah, it's quite a long time, but well done. Well done them for that one. 
Next up, something somewhat more recent, but uh, still very much in the retro camp. Uh, and this is from Code Monkey, who spells his or her name in all caps. Uh, this track is called Eyes On Me from the Final Fantasy VIII soundtrack, written by Nobuo Uematsu and sung by the Chinese pop superstar Fei Wong in one of her very few English language songs. I personally never heard this song in the game, but I did purchase the OST in Hong Kong at the time because it had Final Fantasy VIII and Fei Wong on the cover. The song is a love ballad with a beautifully orchestral soundtrack. Enjoy. Savior, as I whisper. 
So that's from the last millennia as well, 1999, uh, Final Fantasy VIII. Uh, I bought it the day it came out. I've still never played more than a few hours of it. Um, and uh, Glenn, I know you said you're saying you're not a fan of this particular entry in the series either. I'm quite split on this one because I think it's probably Uematsu's strongest Final Fantasy score. Right. But I really don't like the game. No. I really, really dislike the story. Yeah, I think that's what turned a lot of people off. I think this was probably the start of obviously with with Final Fantasy IX, they kind of went back to slightly more you know um, traditional. Uh, medieval style fairy tale things but I, Final Fantasy 8 to me felt like the start of the kind of modern Final Fantasies with these slightly harder to like characters and um, slightly less sort of intriguing worlds maybe although visually stunning obviously um, and I remember I, I featured the the intro music from uh, Final Fantasy 8 before on this podcast because it's just it just astounds me still to this day but yeah for whatever reason the game never never truly grabbed me a friend of mine uh, one of one of several friends called Jim. Uh, he was absolutely mad on this game. Now he loved Seven. He loved Final Fantasy Seven, but he said ultimately he ended up preferring Final Fantasy Eight because the junction system he thought was a work of genius once you got into it. So um, if we ever go on to cover the Final Fantasy games on the Main Cane and Rinse podcast, I would love I would love that opportunity. But obviously it means freeing up. Uh, a few years or possibly a decade of our lives to to cover it sufficiently. At the least, yeah. Yeah, so it's it's kind of tough. But, um, you know, uh, it's easy enough for, for folks to go and play that, download it on PSN, play it on Vita, whatever. Um, is I, I can't remember, did the, version, did the PC version of 8 come back to Steam at some point? I'm not sure. I don't know. No, it'd be nice if they did what they've done with 7 on PS4 and just make a really nice, slick version with a few tweaks um, to download on, on PlayStation 4. But I don't see it happening because I don't think there's the same level of clamour for 8 as there was for 7. But who knows? We'll see. Now it's another, uh, it's another French composer from you. There's a slight theme going on here. Um, Glenn, this is, uh, this is from... French-Canadian... French Canadian, well, good point, yes, yes, good point. This is from Ubisoft Montreal's uh, 2014 downloadable um, sort of action RPG, Child of Light. Child, Child of Light has one of my favourite scores from that year. It's very, very piano-heavy, quite folksy. And uh, I really like piano scores in video games, and I don't think enough games really use them to their full potential, but this mm. this game really goes for the piano.
Yes, so Child of Light there, uh, another game I think, I'm pretty sure that was given away as a PlayStation Plus game as well. Um, so if you have a PlayStation console, I think that was uh, cross-buy or cross, yeah, as well. So I think if you've got PS Plus, you should have that on PS3, PS4, but you can play it on anything really, 360, PC, Xbox One, Wii U even. They did a Wii U version, well done them. Next up, we have another request from canonrince.com slash forum. There's a sound of play folder in there, uh, at the top of which is a sticky thread where we ask for requests for the podcast. We've got plenty still to get through at this point, but that doesn't mean you can't add more. Also, by the way, I wanted to say on this podcast, if we if it looks like or feels like we've skipped past your request uh, and we're doing a more recent one, uh, don't be disheartened. It doesn't mean we'll never come back to it. It just means that for whatever reason for this show, these were the right picks or I wanted to feature some new contributors uh, to get them enthused uh, about the fact that their pick had been chosen um, uh, rather than go back to somebody who's already had songs picked. So it's simply about, um, you know, spreading, spreading the love far and wide. Um, but yeah, please keep those requests coming in. Uh, this is from uh, Gerbermeister, who says, as a long-time Halo fan, Halo 4's music was not my favourite. It was actually really good when listening to it by itself, but it was poorly mixed into the game and was missing the main themes from past Halo OSTs. While Halo 5 had some other issues, its music was top-notch, in my opinion. This song does a perfect job of mixing some of Halo 3's best parts with the Master Chief theme set up in Halo 4. I think this song can hold up to any of the originals by Marty O'Donnell, maybe because it is half him anyway. This is The Trials by Kazuma Jinuchi.
that's from Halo 5 Guardians, the 2015 Xbox One exclusive. That's a game I got for Christmas from my kind in-laws. It is installed and as yet unplayed. So we covered all of the Halo video games, uh, apart from Halo Wars and Spartan uh, Assault, whatever it's called. Um, going all the way back to issue 17 of the podcast, where we covered Combat Evolved Anniversary on the 360, as it was then. More recently, we've been back to all the other Halos, 2, 3, ODST, Reach, and 4 in issues. Get this, 181, 185, 189, 193, and 197. So that's uh, that's a good, like, 12 hours of podcasting about halo if you enjoyed that piece of music if you enjoy the halo games that's all out there for you on itunes stitcher radio tune in or just from the website canawince.com and on that note remember please do venture over to our forum at canawince.com and continue to request as i said your favorites uh, and we'll continue to include a selection in the playlist for each regular Sound of Play podcast. Please subscribe to the podcast uh, and do try to leave us an iTunes review or even just a rating would be great. Um, and uh, yeah, we're still kind of a bit lacking in iTunes reviews, not for Kane and Rinse, the main podcast, but for Sound of Play. So if you do, if you do enjoy this show every other week, then um, please remember to um, tell tell people on the Internet or just tell your friends. That'll do as well. Uh, so, before we hear from your last pick, Glenn, uh, thanks once again for joining us. Thank you very much uh, for having me. Oh, it's always a pleasure. And have you got anything uh, out there in the internet that you want to uh, you want to make people aware of? You can follow me on Twitter at Mr. Flabio, and the game that I'm currently doing some contract programming on, you can follow on Twitter at Godfinger Game. Godfinger. Mm. Is that like God Hand, or is it? It's a sequel to an, an iOS game. Um, that's uh, it's a it's a simple god game basically for for mobile. Nice. Okay. Yeah. So you're sort of keeping your your lion head sort of uh, your connections. Yeah. The people I'm working with are people I worked with on, on Black and White too. So we've all got similar ah. similar backgrounds and experience. Fascinating. Okay. I'll look out for that. Sounds interesting. I remember oh, Black and White was stunning when i first played it the, the 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 zooming in and out of that world really was quite something um yeah so uh finally we have a song from you which has a french title but not a french composer this is from i know one of your favorite composers yasunori mitsuda um now have you played radical dreamers or is this uh, purely a soundtrack love this is purely a soundtrack love i sure. it's, it's a very difficult game to play <laughs> it certainly is yes <laughs> it being um Satellaview exclusive absolutely to Japan. so we, so i don't yeah. even know, i don't even know if there's an english translation patch for it that's a very good question i we talked about this very briefly when we covered chrono trigger on uh Kana Rintz issue 166 um and i do recommend any fans of chrono trigger check out that podcast we had a lot of fun doing that one and we talked about some of the sort of uh spin-offs and successors uh, chrono cross if we ever covered it would get its own podcast but radical dreamers probably wouldn't because as you say satellaview japan only makes it kind of a, a a niche thing that's very difficult for anyone to play let alone people People who don't speak any Japanese, but um, I assume as a fan of uh, Mitsuda's work and uh, SquareSoft and this franchise in general, you you had to seek out the soundtrack. Yeah, absolutely. The interesting thing with the soundtrack to Radical Dreamers is that some of the tracks actually appear in Chrono Cross as well. Only, okay. only in Chrono Cross, they're fully orchestrated and played through the PlayStation, whereas yes. here they're 
using the SNES sound library. So, and there are other similarities as well. There are characters and story moments from Radical Dreamers that appear in Chrono Cross as well. So, mm-hmm. it's got the, the the theme in Chrono Cross is parallel universes rather than time travel. So, Radical yeah, right. Dreamers is seen within the story of Chrono Cross as just being another part of that parallel universe storyline. That's interesting. So, of course, uh, us being based in the UK, we we have some uh, US team members, but Chrono Cross never actually came out over here. It's never been released officially in Europe at all, I don't think. Um, again, assuming that the the sort of the niche nature of it and the enormous amount of translation work they would have had to do to put it into all the European languages just was something they were not willing to undertake in the in the late nineties, early two thousands. Um, obviously, you can play it on import, and there are if you have a, a chip PS one, um, you can uh, download it on the US PSN if you make a US PSN account on PS three and play it that way. Um, so there are ways, um, but yeah, it's an interesting game for sure. Uh, I owned it. I don't own it any longer, but someday, but that's not from this. It may feature, I don't know, but this track's called Le Trésor Interdit, <laughs> I'm going to say, um, don't know what that means. I must admit, uh, but yes, here it is from Radical Dreamers. Thanks Glenn. And, uh, we'll see you next time on Sound of Play. <laughs> 